0: Hi, this is Danielle Crissa from the Jealous Curator, and this is episode 192 of Art for Your Ear. Today's episode is filled with insight, laughter, and paper made from denim, among other crazy processes. (laughs) I wrote about American artist Rebecca Hutchinson a few weeks ago, and while I absolutely loved all of her pieces on the wall, the floor, and hanging from the ceiling, I could not, for the life of me, figure out. How she was doing what she was doing. There was something about pulp and handmade paper but also porcelain, some of which was fired, some wasn't. I don't know but I wanted to know. So here we are. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. We get into all of the ins and outs around dealing with self-doubt, how to push that voice out of your studio and get to work. Spoiler alert, sometimes involves a mini trampoline. (laughs) Okay, I've said too much. Let's jump, oh, oh boy, let's jump right into today's episode, shall we? Calling Rebecca in her East Coast studio. Hi Rebecca, welcome to Art for Your Ear.
1: Thank you. So good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's been so nice. We've been DMing like crazy trying to arrange this and it's so nice to see you and um, for everybody listening, she's in her studio with a gorgeous wall piece behind her. It's like the best Zoom setup ever. Meanwhile, I'm under a fitted sheet. Not quite as (laughs) glamorous.
1: Yes, I'm talking to you from my studio. It is a bright and sunshiny day. I'm on the East Coast, and you're on the West Coast, is my understanding.
0: Yes, and it's cloudy um, and snowing here. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. I can tell that you've got sun. <laughs> it looks it looks bright and beautiful in there right now. Um, oh my gosh, I have so many questions for you. A lot of them are around process. I have been following you on Instagram, looking at all your videos. I still don't understand what the hell you're doing okay <laughs> so I can will walk wait. you
1: through that okay great I'll walk you through you. that um
0: and but you know we've already talked about this I like to go right back to the beginning and hear about sure. artists when they were kids and the whole path right up to what you're doing now it's just so unique and cool so first of all where did you grow up and mm-hmm. were you artsy back then
1: yes I grew up in um Cal- near Kalamazoo Michigan so southern Michigan, uh, about halfway between Droit, uh, Detroit and Chicago, a okay. rural area. And um, my, both my parents were scientists and are scientists. And um, I had a tremendous exposure to several things. Creativity for sure, but investigation. Mm-hmm. Investigation, collection of data and um, exposure to the environment. So I know that all of those things play into what I make, why I make, and we can unravel all of that. But um, just to paint a little picture of me as a kid, um, I am one of four children. I'm the third, born third. Mm -hmm. So I was a, by nature, risk taker. Uh, often 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 in the third borns or middle borns tend to be a little wild or a little more risky they don 't have to please their parents so much. the first borns take care of that that's right but um that's me I, okay yes, yeah, so you can relate yes so um I think that I was surrounded by a fair amount of uh discussion and um academics only in this aspect that uh I was surrounded by the zest of life and the inquiry and um, reading and, and talking. And I was saturated with all of that, to be perfectly honest, within the household. My dad is a behavioral psychologist, my mom, a medical technologist. So one was, uh, you know, a specialist with the internal of the body, and the other one about the dynamics of behavior and environmental impacts. Wow. To And so all of that plays into, you know, I think a really discussion-oriented family. And for me, I think the respite of that was to get outside and to make. So Mm. actually, I was a kid that um, loved, I'm extrovert. I, I loved all the discussion business, but I'm also an incredible doer. And so I was a maker. I built forts. I gardened. And I I made things, but generally made things outside. So that kind of paints the picture of the sort of the wild curly-haired kid outside. <laughs> you know, were you, out your, were you out there by yourself? Were you out there by yourself, or
0: were your siblings? out there too
1: you know actually that was my respite I actually was sort of investigating and building on my own so finding things in the woods collecting things in the woods building I have memories of lots of forts and building out of mud and all I was of that. gonna and ask you no surprise No, don't it's know all surprise. Uh, <laughs> it's all related <laughs> at
0: all I know when before you even started talking I was like I bet she's gonna say forts I used to love building forts too my um in our little family with my husband and son, I'm, I'm the fire builder in our house. So if we ever have like an outdoor fire, I'm the one that builds it in, in our yes. fireplace. And I was telling them the other day that my, the, we had an orchard. And so um, when my dad would cut the prunings and whatever, he'd burn them. And then I wasn't allowed to keep adding things to the fire cause danger, but I was allowed to try and keep the fire going for as long as I possibly could with what was there. Nice. So nice. Would scooch things and, you know, nice. like keep the coals going. And I yeah, would be out Your there process for, was I, yeah, yeah. I would be out there for hours. And, you know, like we built forts all the time. And I could almost smell it as you're talking, you know, like there's that smell of earth and wood and
1: trying yes. to being out
0: there past, you know, the sun going down. <laughs>
1: And I have one more story for you as it relates to that. And it really was a story and an activity that changed my life. We were sort of gentlemen farmers. We had, um, we grew sweet corn and we had fields of hay. So I had summer jobs. And one my summer job was to kind of follow my brother who was cutting the hay and I was driving the next tractor who was raking the hay. And so it was my job to actually move the hay into what we call windrows. They're beautiful, sort of a, a curvaceous row laying on the land. And then the third tractor would be behind me, which would be the baler. So uh, my father would be baling hay. Well, for me, I grew up summer after summer with that responsibility, and I was so enthralled with not just uh, making the curvaceous roll on the land, but I was also involved in making the design of the lines on the land. And I actually look back and think about that, that, you know, as... You know, my dad was anxious, hurry up, get the job done. I was really taking my time and laying the windrows in beautiful lines and beautiful patterns as I would drive the tractor. And I actually found my connection to land and my connection to that I'm a maker, that I like making things and making impact.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so neat that it's so, so foundational, you know? I was, I I always say that with people and their kids, like, you know, when kids get to 16, 17 and it's time to apply for university and they're like, I don't know. It's like, well, what did you love when you were little? Right. You know, what were you just naturally drawn to and it's just so amazing that the work that you're doing now is so clearly was ingrained so young.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I look at it and I know that connection was a, a, a change and a discovery that I was an artist I was a maker I didn't use the word artist I was a maker and I was aware of making and making beautifully and and um being being moved by the impression of what I made so I'd Mm. look back and see all the rows and and all the designs on the land because you can see them very clearly because it's cut it's cut hay and rolled over into these you know formations So so beautiful do you ever work with hay now? Um, Sometimes I'll introduce uh, my freshmen to a project in foundations where we'll just bend chicken wire and stuff chicken wire forms with hay so that we really study form.
0: So I've often
1: brought it into the classroom.
0: That's cool.
1: And then sweet corn for everyone for lunch. (laughs) There you go. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um okay so you've got two scientist parents that's interesting I have my dad was a PhD food scientist and my mom is an artist so I sort of had these two like you Polar know exchange. opposing yeah um both super supportive of what I was doing and so what did your scientist parents think of you being a maker and and wanting to go to art school and stuff
1: yeah I think that was twofold it was you know I was the oddball. So they didn't know what to do with me on the one hand, you know, because I was reorganizing my closet three times a week, you know, color coding and making patterns with my clothes or moving my furniture around. So on the one hand, I was a total inconvenience, right? But on the other hand, they were like, hey, you know, there's something here you know so i was hearing the voice that you might want to look into you know uh at college you might want to look into being an art major you might want to think about that so i heard kind of um you know kind of mixed messages growing up and when i when i went to school i i chose a liberal arts college called berea college it's in central kentucky it's unique in a lot of ways. One of the ways it's unique is it's free. It's free for every student, tuition free. What? Well, yes. Yes. But in exchange, you give 10 hours a week to contributing to the community to be self-sustainable. Wow. So the business majors ran a hotel and a restaurant. Um, The agri, uh, you know, the aggie folks ran a greenhouse and agribusiness. Um, uh, Mathematicians were employed in the accounting office. Like everybody was tried, they tried to place everyone where they showed skill or interest. And Berea is also uh, located in Appalachia, and there's a history of making. And craft mm. mm-hmm. in Appalachia, so there's a huge craft industry at Berea. So there's a weaving department, there's a furniture department, there's a pottery department, there's a um, what am I leaving out? Um, um, Glasswork and wow, um, and and so so I I actually had skills in clay because as a high school student i learned to throw and make things and so i was really attracted to being employed within the pottery area so i actually threw pots through my college education 10 hours a week and uh i received free tuition and i'd get a very small paycheck like 33 cents an hour. So I'd get these paychecks of like $27 or something. <laughs> Pocket money. Yeah. Um, oh, I just thought of the last craft, um, broom making. Actually, my husband was a broom maker, so that's a whole nother story. He he's really great with his hands as well. So Is that where s- you met him? Yes. Wow. Somebody introduced us uh in when I was at in an undergrad. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So um Yeah, the craft industry was uh, a heavy draw for me, and I knew that I enjoyed making. Again, I was involved in using my skill, but I actually found the rigidity of making production work too narrow, and it actually helped me sort of form my notion of what kind of maker I wanted to be and that's break the rules kind of maker and so yes I did major uh, as an art major with a ceramics concentration so I got a you know full traditional training in ceramics but um, took liberal arts classes and were you know fascinated by humanities and um, and and some of the other areas in the arts so I took you know, sculpture and painting and printmaking and so on and so forth. But did any of that intrigue you or were you? Yeah, 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 definitely. And to the point where with the printmaker, I learned a little paper making that got me going because I thought, ooh, this is very tactile and I really enjoy this as well. And as a senior, uh, my faculty kind of recognized my um, my gumption and they said, there's an old building next to um, the laundry on campus. You know, would you like a bigger studio? And so I said, yeah. So <laughs> they, they found this sort of dungeony, kind of dark, gloomy, rock walls, cement floor. And, but it was pretty big. It's, it was actually as big as the space I'm standing in right now. I mean, it was a, a, a comfortable-sized space. And, and I just started making, uh, you know, ferociously as a senior. And I, was, and I was making these large plaster molds and casting these large, simple vessel forms that are way beyond functional domestic comfort. They were big, wide vessel forms. And I was making, pushing both clay into the plaster molds as well as learning enough paper making to be pushing paper fiber into the mold. So I was making both clay and and fiber vessel forms. Wow, this was as a senior
0: in your BFA.
1: Yes. Wow. Oh
0: my gosh, that was one of my main questions for you was like, when did, yeah, you've been doing this forever.
1: Yeah, well, I think it really settled my junior and senior year. Yeah. But it was from the gift of faculty saying, she's got energy, and giving me and finding an extra space, and, and then I fill it. You know, yeah, I just yeah. filled it. And, uh, and so were you and that firing really- that, Clay?
0: At the
1: yes. time, yeah. yes, I was. I was firing all the vessel work, and I was pushing in the fiber uh, to the plaster molds and making, you know, uh, paper vessels as well. So my my senior show is both uh, fired ceramic vessels and paper vessels, which is so interesting because right now, when i I look around my studio, everything's the combination of those materials. So that has already set a trajectory for me as a senior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So amazing really, because, you know, so many people I talk to, it's very rare that people sort of find their, that, that thing that early on, like what so great that you understood that and, and ran with it.
1: Well, I wouldn't say Danielle that I understood everything. I'll I'll be (laughs) complete full disclosure I was a maker and I understood the love of making. Right. I'm not sure that I understood really what I was making or why I was making. Right. That was way development that happened after that point. But I understood my my kinetic force. Like I understood my propensity to making, and I was given the freedom to do that. And so I do know that at least there was a recognition that I started using the word artist, that I started seeing myself as artist at the end of undergrad. I wouldn't say I used that word uh, before then uh, in terms of my identity. I grew into my identity. I was you know, liberal arts, taking lots of classes, but kept coming back to it. And then I had this sort of solid thread, the solid foundation that I was skilled with clay. And then I was making clay objects. Um, The the craft industry, they throw about $200,000 worth of pots a year. And that gets then sent out and sold and obviously is, um, you know, paying for our education or at that time, our education. So yeah, Berea is pretty special in That, that way. Yeah.
0: And is it, does it still operate like that?
1: Oh, Absolutely.
0: It's, wow. How did you even It's kind of, of listed it? yeah, go ahead. How did you even, like, did you have a great guidance counselor that told you, or were you just like a little researcher who went and found out about this school?
1: Uh, I think both. I think I bumped into it in travels, on vacation at one point. I, some, somehow I bumped into the notion of it, and then I did go back to research it and realize, ooh, I really love the notion of community and equality, I mean, it's no basis on what one can afford, everyone is a part of giving to the community, and being provided by the community. So in terms of connecting, it also connects deeply with in terms of my own sense of feminism and equality issues, uh, community engagement, I think that was such a good fit. And uh, no, I, I sort of bumped into it. And then through research found that, yeah, I really connect to this place. And yeah. I, I really, I really, I want to go here. And what uh,
0: what's the so, town like? Is it quite small? Like is, the, is it basically the
1: school? <laughs> tiny. It's Nowheresville. It's in the middle of Kentucky. Uh, it's right off the highway, just about an hour south of Lexington. I mean, it's it's absolutely dead besides the village of the town yeah. and, and, uh, but that was it, but it's surrounded by gorgeous areas, places to hike. And, you know, I mean, it was fine for undergrad and, um, you Well, know, it kind
0: of sounds amazing. It almost sounds like, like an, a residency
1: almost like, you know what I mean? It, and wouldn't it be nice if the whole world worked like that? <laughs> it's amazingly hopeful mission yeah. statement. Yeah. Um, for, you know, students that are lucky enough to go there, there's, you know, strong academics, but really this whole sense of community engagement. Yeah, that's amazing. And, yeah. So
0: did you, um so then you did your MFA in Georgia, but did you take a break in between or did you go right into your MFA?
1: I did take a break. I uh worked as an art teacher for several elementaries and preschools. Um, in the Houston, Texas area, actually uh, followed then my boyfriend, who's now my husband. And we were there for uh, a strong while, but in the back of my mind, during my senior year, there were several visiting artists that came through. And my, my faculty actually did uh, walk through through my studio, that sort of dungeon-ish yeah. studio that was <laughs> next to the laundry on campus. And several faculty reached out to me saying, if you want to consider graduate school, you know, please write. So in that gap year, I was thinking already, I really want to extend the challenge of making and the challenge of growing uh, my, my verbal maturity, my visual maturity. And so um, I wrote several schools, and one of them was Athens, Georgia, University mm-hmm. of Georgia. And um, I attended there the following year. Okay. So MFA after a short gap year. Okay. And I take it the broom maker came with you actually he did he followed me six months later he was in a he was in a position but he decided he wanted to go on do a master's and a phd his area of study is uh languages spanish and latin american literature uh as well as um he's had an ongoing um commitment to furniture making and broom making so he actually has a business a summer business I know we'll have a chance to talk about this but we both live uh, in Helena Montana during the summers for three months every summer and have for 25 years and uh, he has a really busy bent willow furniture business where he Harvest willow from our land and makes beautiful bent willow furniture. Oh, wow. You too. So of oh Bria word. craft that Bria craft, uh, I think also settled deep within him as well. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, so you get to Georgia to
0: do your MFA. So of course you're still continuing on with what you were doing during your BFA. And, um, how was it? Like, did you, was
1: it everything that you wanted it to be? It was completely different. I was at a, you know, undergrad was a small, sleepy liberal arts town. And then I went to just the opposite, you know, a college town, a huge program, you know, 40,000 students. So it was just the opposite in a lot of ways. But it was very good for me. I, I actually wanted to see if maybe um, in addition to being Uh, developing as an artist, I wanted to see if I was a teacher, and and I wanted to try that opportunity, and I was given that opportunity as a grad student to try uh, to actually take on intro classes and and to teach a few classes, and I found that was a really good connection for me as well, Hmm. and so the work changed completely in graduate school. It became so much more anthropomorphic, so much more scale oriented and site oriented. So I began to really understand scale. I began to understand, "Mm, I'm building with the dynamics of place. Not only is place influencing the work, but I'm actually connecting to place, connecting to the wall, connecting to the ceiling and starting to build with site information. So in graduate school, literally everything, uh, you know, sort of expanded for me scale wise, as well as concept wise. And I would say that that is also where I got tremendous in-depth training in papermaking. There's a wonderful papermaker uh, book artist, Charlie Morgan, that sort of took me on and I apprenticed for nearly a year and a half and learned everything that I could in terms of paper making as well because really up to that point, I had just taken a workshop or or it was included as part of a class within printmaking. So it was an opportunity to really dig in. And I guess at the beginning, I knew that I was connecting to it as a material. I'd already used it as a material. I knew I was connecting to it as a process. It harvests material from place. Paper making is made from harvesting plant material or other garments that have been made with plant material, so cotton and linen. Mm. We'll talk more about that. But um, I really knew that I was connected to these processes, again, We can go back and even pinpoint, you know, farming. Yes, I was going to say. We can pinpoint that as a connection, right, of sight, a connection to harvesting, a connection to using material, right? So Charlie was great. I learned so much. And uh, for a year and a half, I just, you know, in addition to working on my sculptural work, I trained with him. And became a really good paper maker as well, so when you were the, working with yeah. that learning all the paper making, were you
0: were you shifting like was your was your um excitement level and stuff still there for clay, or were you starting to like be more like into paper or was it the clay always there?
1: I think the clay stayed put, but I think that it was like uh Uh, like a wing, like a wing off of clay. It was like the wings next to clay because in a way it responded to in the same way as clay. It was impressionable. It was wet. It was moldable. It was immediate. It took impression. I think I related to it very much like I did uh, with clay. I did never think logically or cerebrally, I'm going to combine these materials one day. I never had that clarity of thought. It was even later that I found that combination of materials gave me something pretty unique and special. And uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I think at the time, in all honesty, it was just another material that I found sensual. Yeah. It was sensual and it was responsive and it was like clay and therefore I was connected to it. And it was beautiful. It had color. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you could you made it it. like it's so neat that you You boil it. Yeah. You boil it. You're boiling your grasses. You're boiling your flax. You're boiling your artichoke leaves. You're boiling anything that grows on the earth can be made into a handmade paper. Now we know handmade paper to be made of trees because they're plentiful but handmade paper can be made out of anything and then of course garments are made out of things that once grew and so cotton and linen garments can be cut up and immersed into the hollander blender which is a big vat that you know moves in a in a flush of water in a circle and a, and a motor powers a cogwheel and this cogwheel moves around and it actually sort of beats the fiber. It doesn't cut the fiber, but it actually beats the fiber. And so- And like turns it into a pulp kind of? Pulp. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The end result is pulp. And then what you do with pulp, there are so many choices. How long does uh, it take for for
0: it to do that? Like how long does it take to go from cut up cotton into pulp?
1: Exactly. So um, two hours is kind of minimum. And then you can take some fibers and beat them up to six to seven to eight hours. And the longer it's beaten, it's not that it's cutting the fiber. It's actually elongating the fiber. It's pounding it. It elongates the fiber. And so the fiber is elongated and swollen with water the length of the time you've beaten it. And it's then very strong. So you can make papers that are beaten, you know, seven, eight hours, and you can hardly tear them because they're so incredibly strong. Wow. So you can control the behavior of paper by how it's prepared. So crazy. I know
0: nothing. That's why I was like watching your videos and I'm like, yeah, I still don't understand what's happening here. <laughs> this is so neat. Um, okay.
1: I have so many I hope, follow-up I hope questions. The, yeah. I hope by the time we finish talking, you you have a a whole lot better clarity. Well, I just,
0: I'm just going to pretend I don't and make it an excuse to come and visit your studio and and do an in-person workshop. Yes, (laughs) Um, absolutely. Okay, I have so many follow-ups to that. So is that all the stuff that you were learning with him for that year and a half about like, beating all the leaves into submission and doing exactly. Okay. Preparing,
1: preparing fiber, which fibers are excellent for paper making, how to pull excellent, beautiful, perfect sheets of paper, how to make a post of paper, a hundred sheets that are identical. Oh boy. How to do unusual things like pulp painting, painting on a, a wet sheet of paper, how to spray a sheet of paper, how to pour an eight foot I saw thing.
0: that, I watched that video. That's so interesting. I'm gonna put all of these videos and everything into the big post that I do that goes with this Thank podcast you. so people can go and look too. But Thank um, you. okay, so when all of that is happening, I think I'm picking up on the fact that the, I'm picturing the curly haired kid riding on the yep. tractor and I'm, it seems <laughs> like you just have a curiosity. Like it's like when you're learning how to do all that, and you're pouring the paper, you're not thinking. Are you thinking beyond that moment? Are you just like, "This is so cool," and I'm learning how to do this? Like,
1: both. I think that I people describe me sometimes as no fear, Rebecca, no fear, Rebecca. And I thought about that before because I'm never, I I never take my own personal safety, you know, in jeopardy or anything like that. But I think I don't fear. Um, engineering or the construction of things. So I've taught myself how to weave. I've taught myself how to crochet. I mean, I teach myself uh, by learning from others or figuring out or inventing all the time. So Mm -hmm. I do have a curiosity, but I also trust that um, by touching and constructing, I am going somewhere somewhere. Yeah. with this material and I think I trust myself enough to know what beauty is so it's guiding me in my choices mm-hmm. and it um, sounds like
0: you're probably not afraid of messing it up you'll just do try it again why not yeah see I think that's what stops so many people is the oh gosh I don't know how to make paper and I'm just gonna this is gonna be a big old hot mess I'm not even gonna go there and I just I'm like you with your hands in those buckets and just you know, doing it and figuring it out. And I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast recently or not, but I've, I had this crazy aha moment recently. I feel like I did talk about this already, but I'm going to say it again. So growing up, I was just like you, I was making stuff with my hands and, and then I went to art school for painting and, uh, I, I mentioned to you when I sent you, the, you know, my loose questions ahead of time that, that craft was really like poo-pooed oh, yes. at my university. It yes. was just like, you didn't even, if a thread showed up, oh dear God, you couldn't even have a thread sewn onto your painting. Cause that Interesting. was craft. Yeah. Interesting. Um, collage was looked down upon like anything like that. And so I stripped it all away. And then I don't know when or how, but somewhere along the way I decided I wasn't good at making stuff like making with my hands, you know, that I couldn't do clay, that I could, I admired people. I write about people all the time, glassblowers, um, ceramicists, but in my head, my inner critic was saying, well, you can appreciate it, but you can't do it. And so I've recently just started playing with clay and Rebecca, I'm quite good it. at it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there like, you go. Well, I've, I've spent 25 years telling myself I'm not good at it. And what was I yeah. afraid of making something that didn't look right. Okay. well,
1: squish it up and start again. You know, I hear, I hear you and I do think we are in a culture that we're curating ourselves out of all kinds of things. We just, Before we aren't. even start. Yeah. You know, we just, we, we are in that kind of culture. And then we also have I uh, I don't know if you've ever studied the Enneagram, Personality types, but there are certain personality types that have a stronger inner critic within them, Mm, right? Yes. So, so that's interesting thing to always think about, and I do think about that when teaching because some of us are just built within the fabric where that voice is stronger than others. Yeah. So if so if you can kind of push that voice out, and you can kind of block the cultural noise. Right? Yeah. Because it's both inside and outside. Yeah. If you can push it all to the side, you can be at one with your authenticity. And your authenticity will never do you wrong. It will always guide you into a one of a kind. So and true. one of a kind is great. <laughs> I mean, coming back to culture again, one of a kind, uh, it, it sells. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, if we want to come back to culture. You know, there's where there's also, uh, you know, financial momentum that that we have to kind of, we have to think about pushing aside all that outer and inner noise. And then being at one with our authenticity and our strength. Mm -hmm. and knowing that we are going to have a final result that's not ever been seen before yeah because you are the only one that made it and your package of growing up and all that you have is feeding into that moment of that making of that one of a kind and so that takes practice for all of us yeah even You know, I mean, as professional artists, we all practice getting rid of that outer noise. And I often say to myself, it's almost like once you find the connection of your intention with the piece, I actually do several things that help me. I'll draw when I see it in the drawing. I'll, I'll I'll grab a word. It makes me think of a word when I look at the drawing. I'll write the word on the bottom of the drawing, you know. And then when I come back into the studio and I'm reconnected to that drawing and that word, I I fill up with that word, and I push out kind of the logical brain that starts to happen like no no you can't do that no no that's a silly word no you know you sort of have to push all this noise away get filled up with the essence of your intention and go to town make <laughs> go to town make make and make
0: yeah yeah i think that's exactly it. you know people talk about being in the zone and i think that is what the zone is is when you're yes. just making and um sometimes you don't even know why You're just in it and you're loving the colors or you're loving the feel in your hands or you're loving the way the brush feels on the, whatever you're brushing the stuff
1: onto. Um, That's where the magic happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and being free of judging. Being free of judging. Like I even share with my students, do not critique the process. Do not critique the process while the piece is in the works. Do not critique it at all. Let the piece happen. Then when you're done, step away have a few days from it come back to it if you want to engage in the critique process then you can do that and you can write a list of things you want to do better next time yeah but not in the process in the process be at one be with yourself be yeah. with your authenticity and, uh, and be empowered like yeah. be empowered with that moment
0: well you know i say that to people a lot like if It took me a really long time to figure this out Um, again, because I had some bad experiences during my BFA with, with profs giving me terrible advice. Like um, the one I, one of my favorites is um, I always had a humor in my work and I was told, um, look, it's bad enough that you're a woman, but if you actually have humor in your work too, you'll never be taken seriously as an artist.
1: uh have they ever heard of satire
0: so i (laughs) said they ever watch
1: saturday night live i I mean come on I know that's one way of talking
0: yep nope so i stripped all the humor out and i you know i was like oh should i have a pen name that you can't tell them i'm a woman or you know like all these little Uh... seeds that got planted in my head as things to avoid so that when i was in the middle of process i would be critiquing going oh this is going to oh no, this seems too funny or this seems to this or this seems too that to the point where you just said like, you know, don't judge and then step away and have a look. And then next time, you know, try a different way. Well, I never got to the next time
1: oh, because sad. I would
0: look at the, you know, the the final piece and go, well, this is terrible because of this, this and this. And I just wouldn't trust oh. myself to do the next time, you know, yeah. um, that I'm is now sad. far in my past and and yeah. I've got all sorts of next times happening in my studio finally. But that's what I want. Like, that's what I want people to know is that you're not going to sit down and make a masterpiece your first time out or your second time or your third time or your fourth. Like like you said, like you have to practice. That's what you do. You've been practicing for years.
1: And practice pushing the voice out so that you're yeah. connected to your intention and the clarity of your intention in yourself. And it will not it will not misguide you. Yeah. You will end up with the most unique and most wonderful breath on paper or in space or on yeah. the table or what. Do,
0: or... do you ever hear that voice or have you just gotten really good at,
1: at like you've got oh, your I techniques. hear it all the time. Everybody hears it. I hear it all the time. Oh, yeah. I what does yours tell pushing. you? It just says, oh, no, that's not a good idea. Mm. That's not a good idea. Or, or no, you don't want to put that on top of that. No, no, no. You and don't do want to you do it anyway? I push the voice out and say, you're not welcome here. Take the exit. (laughs) You know, sometimes I'll get on my mini tramp and, you know, and jog for 10 minutes to get the blood rushing again (laughs) and then go back to it. And I'm like, Hey, it's, you know, I'm coming. This is my piece. You're not welcome here.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Everyone (laughs) go and get a mini trampoline for your studio right now
1: there you oh go god. oh they're that's the, the greatest you can get on there and jog for 20 minutes and or if you feel like a great song comes on you can get on it and you can totally go wild dancing oh my god that's <laughs> hilarious
0: and the best advice that has ever come out of this podcast Many okay.
1: <laughs>
0: okay so we that. got totally tangented which i told you we were going to okay so you do your mfa yeah. you're starting to think that you would maybe like to teach because clearly i think you are a nurturer Like that I think is just in you. And of course you gravitated to it. So your work is expanding and changing and becoming more site specific. So you graduate with your MFA, then what happens?
1: Yeah. I, I, I I hit with the reality. Like I got to financially support myself. Like, like I, like, you know, I have that kind of reality wash over me like, Whoa, you know? And I think, okay, how do I want to handle that? What do I want to do? And um, I read about a program called uh, Artists in Schools, and it's for the North Carolina Arts Council. I apply, that I get accepted, and I move to North Carolina and I travel for a year all over the state. And they place me uh, by by school and by classroom with teachers that want an artist. Oh, and so my job was to go into the classroom listen to what was being taught oh they're teaching the bones the body and then come up with a project where i could bring materials to the project and so i did that and i i learned so much i mean it was hard i was paid well i was financially really in good shape because of that And I loved it. But at the same time, it was hard because I was classroom after classroom after classroom, school by school, community by community. And I learned so much about what's a good classroom and what's not so good in a classroom. (laughs) And I actually feel like uh, I got to introduce lots of materials, lots of projects and worked with beautiful kids. Was it high school or elementary or both? Mostly, mostly I was placed under eighth grade. So it was generally elementary and middle school, generally. And I think I was in over 200 schools. So it was extremely busy. And, but incredible in a lot of ways. And the teachers told me it was really life-changing for some of their kids. Because maybe, maybe once they touched the material, it made sense to them. You know how to deal with geometry yes. in a new way, in yes. a new way. So I know that it was really, really great, but I also know it wore me out. I was like the art cheerleader for a year. I was all over the state. But that was still very, very good for me, and I learned what good teaching and what bad teaching was. I have to be honest. I really learned classroom management, and mm-hmm. I learned all these tricks that teachers had about don't talk louder, talk softer. And when you talk softer, the kids talk softer. And I learned all these simple tricks <laughs> that I was like, "Oh wow, that that really works." <laughs> you know, but nobody, you know, I mean, I had taught two classes in my entire life at the university as a graduate student. So I was in two hundred classrooms. I, I it, was, it was yeah, baptism expanded. by fire. Oh my god, you must it's have been expanded. exhausted. Yeah, it was really something, and I realized at the end of the year, okay, I'm not getting enough studio time, I'm doing a lot of outreach, and I'm doing a lot of material uh, sharing and material manipulation with with the kids, but I'm not getting a lot of making done, and I applied to a program uh, as a fellow at the Archie Bray Foundation, which is a well-known ceramic foundation, Yeah. and I was accepted, and was a little bit worried because by this time, uh, you know, that really adorable boyfriend I had is now a husband, and we have a beautiful 11-month-old baby, and, what? and I'm thinking, you know, is now the time to move to Montana to be a fellow, and we thought about it. He was finishing, finishing a PhD, is actually writing a dissertation, and and we decided to go. It was a risk. And we, we we moved to Montana for two years and I focused in the studio. We did a lot of parental, you know, sharing, right? We did a lot of switching back and forth. I'd fly to the studio during nap time. I'd come back, you know. <laughs> it, she'd go to bed, I'd put her to bed at eight o'clock, I'd fly back to the studio, I'd work till you know one thirty in the morning you know, this kind of thing, but we did a lot of parental sharing and I, and I did nothing but two, for two years make work. Wow. And I made a lot of work. And I have to tell you, a lot happened during that time. I think that for the first time I understood the potential of paper and clay as a mixable material because I was in a beautiful place looking at nature in a huge way in Montana looking at species how species built and i was like they're using clay and fiber nest making swallows are mixing the materials why why am i not mixing the materials why is that a material in one bucket and that a material in another bucket why what's going on here like why am i not thinking of this and then i started finding other people in the world that use this material called paper clay there was uh a couple people in europe and there was a maker in on the west coast rosette galt that had written a book at that time and and i thought oh my gosh there's other people doing this too so i then really during that two years really settled into a great routine of making building large-scale sculptural work and really becoming an expert by doing mixing the materials so I was mixing, using all my clay knowledge, using all my paper making knowledge, and then really understanding the potential of what paper clay could be. And for me, that's a couple of things. That's a couple of things. That's, that's the ability to make ceramic form really large, but lightweight, because paper mixed with the clay decreases the weight. Hmm. It decreases the weight because when you fire it, all the paper burns away. So if I put 35% paper mixed into the clay, build the form, put it in the kiln, fire it, all of that paper fiber is burnt away on a microscopic level. So you can't see that it's burnt away, but you've lost 35% of the weight. So all of a sudden I could still build large scale sculpture and I'm decreasing the weight which meant a lot to me in terms of care of my own body and moving and ease. And it gave me incredible strength. Uh, No wonder animals build with fiber and clay. It's like, it's adobe. And we know adobe from around the world is an incredible architectural material. It's the combination of grasses from the field, clay from the creek mixed together and you have this really strong architectural material. so all of a sudden it opened up the world uh, to me in terms of conceptually connecting back to the environmental roots of my own connections, mm-hmm. you know, my own childhood, the lay of the land, the windrows on the on the <laughs> land, using harvestable materials, and using my expertise of those of those two materials, and then really, uh, mastering, you know, being a sculptor and making, you know, Im, you know, impactful form using the combination of these two materials. So a lot happened during those two years. But at the end of the two years, I I had like, f- you know, five major shows going in different directions, and so that was the result of two years of wow. concentration
0: good for you for for realizing that you needed that for yourself you know
1: absolutely yeah and what a gift what a gift and so um yeah huge huge steps for me during that so so then you're showing
0: you're starting to show all of this stuff um how did where did you go did you go to massachusetts
1: after that I I went where I, I actually had several people walk into my studio and say, oh, what's going on here? I love this. What's going on here? And, you know, a couple of them, you know, one was a really well-known professor from the University of Washington, Akio Takamori, and he says, come teach for me. And I was like, teach for you. And he says, yeah, I, I have a winter term. I, I needed a, I need a prof and I'd like you to come teach. So it set me on a uh, motion of teaching at a variety of universities for the next three years until oh, okay. I settled into a full time job and so
0: um once you started doing that, were you able to um, find a balance between teaching and your own practice? absolutely yeah and that's
1: I mean the expectation of being a teacher is that we are makers, we're right. teaching making, we are makers, we're teaching making. So it's an expectation for me, a joy, but it's also an expectation within academics, uh, that you are, that you are making and that you have a busy making life and a busy, you know, showing life. Right. And I've always been able to, uh, balance both of those things. Yeah. I always say I've balanced three things. I could never do more than three things. It was always teaching, making, and and taking care of a family, I never could do more than three, but those well are those are three. some
0: three very large <laughs> things <laughs> It's
1: not those really like walking
0: and chewing gum, you know
1: <laughs> those were my three anyway
0: yeah, yeah, wow, that is that those are big things um so when you did get your full time job yes, was that um UMass Dartmouth or
1: where? Yeah, it wasn't the first job that I had, but I did uh, three uh, visiting um, assistant professor positions first in a variety of spots around the country. Um, And then I ended up in a longer visiting assistant professor position at Virginia Commonwealth University for three years. Okay. And then I applied to tenure track jobs around the country and uh, ended up at UMass Dartmouth. Where wow. I and so was your family through. just coming along for the ride for all of this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, my husband, he always said to me, you know, I teach language. Rebecca, I can go anywhere. I can mm. teach anywhere. It's, you know, your position is going to be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit harder to find that fit. So, um, you know, I can go where you need to go. And and so that's what we did. Wow. And so, when you left there,
0: because um, you said that you go back to Montana every summer, we do. So, so, was that starting then? Like you, you went to do your things, but you'd yeah. always come back to Montana in the summer.
1: Yeah, we bought a small up uh, a small piece of property when we were uh, at the end of my fellowship, and we just trusted that we we found it beautiful, and we just trusted that you know it felt like home. Yeah. in a lot of ways, and that we that we knew we both had the gift of teaching and that we wanted to teach and that we'd have those summer months. So we, we've been there 25, 26 summers. Wow. Um, so every summer, our daughter's grown up there every summer. Um, every summer it's, it's studio time and um, it's a different kind of landscape. It gives us a change of view, a change of pace, a change, a change of climate. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: are you there right now during all this quarantine stuff or No, are you? I'm oh. I'm on
1: the I'm on the East Coast. Oh, okay. I'm on the East Coast and 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 close to the academic calendar here at yeah. Start Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um so what do you teach there is it undergrad and graduate? I do. I teach undergraduate and graduate students and um we have a beautiful facility in downtown New Bedford. We're on the top floor of a beautiful renovated old department store. So we're on the very top floor. And uh, it's a busy, busy ceramics uh, department where um, undergraduate classes in hand building and throwing and mold making and uh, clay and glaze and and, uh, intermediate and advanced classes in both hand building and throwing. And then we have a vibrant, vibrant graduate program where they're uh, really developing their own work, and that is both post-baccalaureate, a one-year graduate certificate program, as well as a three-year MFA graduate oh, program, wow. and so uh, I have 10, ten uh, post-baccalaureate students and eight MFA students. Um, I might mention that the post-baccalaureate program is either face-to-face or remote, so I have many graduate students that are from all over the you know, country and world that are one-year graduate students that are remote online. Wow. Yeah.
0: Is that because of COVID or is that how it always has been?
1: I have always taught um, online because I've always felt like there are people around the world that want to, to be with us and want to know the knowledge. So I've always offered online uh, wow, courses. Wow, so but cool. But during COVID is particularly helpful, you know, because yeah. we're having to care for our families and care for ourselves, staying healthy. Yeah. And um, so the online option has been very popular.
0: Yeah. No kidding. Well, and and you were kind of prepared. <laughs> yeah. You kind of we knew how ready. to do it. That's yeah. True. You were ready. That's yeah. Because so many of my friends are teachers and they're like shifting everything to it's figure hard. out how to do it. It's hard if you've never done that. It's hard.
1: Um, You know what? I
0: I had an extra question that I threw in after I sent you my little list. Okay. Yeah. Um, When, this is my question. Okay. When did you start working with assistants?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting, um, beautiful extension of my studio practice. I, I, Realized that the large scale commissions. So, when I am invited to a museum, I lay out the project a year and a half in advance. Like, I'm working on drawings, I'm working on laying it out in the studio, I'm making hundreds and hundreds of parts. Making all of the parts ahead of time, then everything gets boxed, shipped to the museum. I go to the museum and i 'm on the mu- i 'm on the museum floor for seven days and i 'm building a site piece that 's wow. for the site installation work. The sculptural work that happens on an ongoing basis in the studio, like the piece you 're seeing behind me yeah is is work I can do on my own. I can dig in, set the goal, get it done. but the installation projects are kind of huge marathon projects, and I think um, 10 years ago I realized wow when I'm weaving if I'm weaving something on one side it really makes sense to me to have someone on the other side and continue the weave and or or you know kind of continue continue the process and so I started I think 10 years ago um Hiring assistants and they're they're part time and it's a but it's a beautiful part of my studio life.
0: Was it hard at first? I love
1: talking. I love sharing. I love processing. You know, I don't feel terribly uh, concerned about control. Don't touch it. Don't do it that way. It's a you know, it's a it's a dance between us in terms of you know just sharing but also being open to the brilliance of another set of eyes like oh maybe you should try it this way (laughs) and I'm like oh okay you know this kind of extension so um, I uh, right now Addie Muth works for me and she works uh, remotely uh, uh, one day a week and then we do a three or four day face-to-face weekend once every month so we do kind of a four-day marathon making was uh, she a student of yours? No, she wasn't. She reached out and I think found me online, or um, maybe a professor tipped her off to me and she asked me if I'd consider and that was uh three or four years ago and um I think at the time, I might have told her she might she might be able to characterize this better than I. I think I might have said, "Oh, I don't know about this year, but maybe I can think about maybe an internship maybe in the future." And and then I changed my mind. She seemed like she really was interested. And I said, well, let's try it out. And I invited her to Montana. I think I invited her for a month. Um, and she was coming from the West Coast. She was coming from uh, Seattle, Washington, where she had graduated. And um, and I think she came and worked for me for a month. And she really liked it. She said she really liked it. And I said, well, let's keep going. Let's wow, find a way so to do cool. this. So.
0: Yeah. I'm always so curious about... Um that jump to decide that you need that help or you know to under, to know what can be delegated and what needs to be you. Yeah. I find that I really like I don't know like I'm starting to realize I need help. Sure. But then I'm like but then I'm such a control freak, Rebecca. It's a problem.
1: <laughs> I don't know that might be your might be your gift are you Enneagram one are you a number I don't know I got when you said that
0: I'm like I gotta go look that up
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think you might uh really enjoy details and lots of like careful perfection details Yes. yes and I think that comes with um uh control in an obvious way it's needed you know to get those kind of details but you might find that um you'll find someone that's a good fit for you that offers skills for a task that might be a great balance, you know, for you. that's, that's what I've done. I, I realized that, um, that the projects are big and that it is helpful to have, I can't do the museum projects without a crew of people. I'll be honest with you at the museums. I have four or five people helping because it has to happen. It's got five days to go up. Uh, They got to get me out of there. They're opening the doors. The program's opening. It's a short invitation. So I have multiple people helping me then. And I actually feel a little bit different about the control like i don't mind giving up control like uh you know together we need to do this task you know there's parts i only can do i have to stand on the floor look up i have to balance the forms i have to get the work to look right because it's because it's my work i wrote it right so right. i have to execute that vision but i i really think there's a lot of camaraderie and sharing and there's the gifts of other gifts that are mm-hmm. you know are coming into it, but I have one little self conscious this is full disclosure, one little self conscious feeling about having assistance. I don't want them to feel like an assistant i i i um, I want them to know that I'm so appreciative and that they're um they're a team they member. They're a team member. They stand yeah. next to me. Yes. I really am very self conscious about that. So, yeah. um, I, I always think about Rome wasn't. You know, was Rome was kind of built on the backs of others, and and I am in no way interested in that kind of experience. I'm really interested in that sort of side by side. Yeah, um, I think that's the teacher and
0: you again too. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I have see now. I have more follow ups. Okay, so two things about museum shows. Yes. One. So when you find out that you've got a museum show, do you do you then before you do anything, do you go to the space so that you can respond to that space so that you're not just making something and then showing up and installing it? You're, you're responding to that environment.
1: Yes, I, I don't usually go, but I but I usually get a stack of information. I get the layout. I get the square footage. I get photographs. Okay. I get. Um, I even sometimes get program goals you know like the Mm. educational coordinator you know might let me know um something specific so i get kind of i kind of gather all of the information physical information and then that kind of gets me going on the conceptual research Mm. i'm usually then researching the region researching the place um like for example i just built at the dom museum of art which is in missouri i got to research all about the economy of this small rural town that is this gorgeous, gorgeous museum and found that their economy was built on um, blue jean industry. They made blue jeans. So I got to use blue jeans primarily in the piece. And You upside- pulp them up? Yes, and upcycled upside- currency. I got a million dollars from uh, the mill that makes our money crane industry in western massachusetts i got to do a short residency and all of our money is taken offline every five years and shredded put in the landfill and so i got the opportunity from their invitation um, to come and upcycle recycle that shredded you know, a million dollars, and I got to pull sheet after sheet after sheet of paper and then got to use them in florets and, and build them into the piece. So I got to build this blue jean currency piece. So that research so cool. got me going on that kind of, you know, uh, opportunities and connections and, you know, gathering, harvesting, um, constructing, and then finally on the floor, really constructing the piece over five or six days wow is that the one that's sort of cage like the the Mm -hmm. um okay so that was my
0: follow-up was to say those cage type things are those willow branches from your property in montana yes
1: (gasps) harvesting every chance i get harvesting willow (laughs) when you said that
0: when you said that about your husband and the willow, but i was like i bet that's what
1: those things are made out of yes yes there you have it now you know me
0: I'm piecing it all
1: together. Harvesting from place. Yes. So willow is very fast growing and it's actually considered by, by the farmers and the ranchers as an invasive plant. And so it's a good choice. It's a good choice to keep, uh, you know, you know, pruning, pruning back. So harvesting the willow. And they grow so fast. Yeah. And they're beautiful. I strip the bark off. It's a really beautiful uh, blonde wood. And then the bark I could boil and boiled down into paper. And so it's just a, it's a nice process and um, it's really simple woodworking, but it's, you know, wow. it feels, feels right. It feels have like you ever decision. written a book about paper making? I have written an on uh, like an ebook. Okay. I have done an ebook and um, have, I guess I haven't seen kind of the window of taking the time uh, maybe a year off of teaching or something right. to actually produce a book.
0: But because I do you have so that-
1: much information in your head. <laughs> Well, happy to share it. I Everyone that takes a workshop with me, I provide that ebook, you know, free of charge. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your workshops
0: because I, I saw that on your Instagram too. Yeah. Um, so that's not through like your are teaching no. at school. That's like your Just own.
1: Independent, independent and, you know, art centers around the country or around, you know, even Europe and Asia will reach out and ask me to teach a workshop. And uh, I'm happy to do that. I do four or five a year. Wow. And that's, that's about it. And uh, they're anywhere from two to three day to one week. And um, what about all, during all
0: this quarantine time? Have you just not all been online okay. I'm teaching
1: all remotely?
0: And are you really missing being in a group of people? I
1: do. I, I miss kind of going around the room and being yeah. excited about what they're making. But uh, people are giving me feedback that they really uh, feel like I'm reaching through the screen and it's okay. effective. So I'm I'm grateful that it's uh, that it's that it has a place right now and that the online teaching can still be effective. Yeah, and um, it's incredible and wonderful. You know, just like you and I are across uh, the country from each other yeah. on each coast. You know that we can find a way to be together and um, you know head towards a goal. So so yeah. the workshops. You know, they have continued even though they're all remote. They're all online. That's so great.
0: I actually just on the weekend taught a, um, we did a bad art party where you bring all your terrible supplies and make the worst thing you can possibly make. It was so, I was a bit worried because I've only ever done them in person and we were doing it on Zoom and I thought, how are we going to do this? Well, it was so much fun. There were people from, like, there's someone from Dubai, Scotland. Yeah, it was amazing. And it's like, if we had done that in Vancouver, it would have been 20 people from Vancouver.
1: Vancouver. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But we had 50 people because we didn't have to worry about a space that could accommodate everybody, you know, and um, everybody was holding their stuff up to the screen and, um, you know, they'd unmute themselves and ask a question and then show hilarious things and tell their story about all the junk that went into their piece. It was I was stunned by how
1: much I loved it. I I was very worried that it wouldn't work, but it was great. That's great. And I can see how you use humor, even in that situation. And remember how your teacher said that there was humor, (laughs) there was a line of humor in your work. Yeah. that you're even using humor even in that teaching moment to just kind of rejoice about the humor that might have come up even in the manipulation of the materials. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. and that
0: was the thing is like it was about 5 6 years ago now that I had this aha moment about you know I've I've stayed hilarious clearly but I never let it get into my artwork. Um, and it was about six years ago, um, talking to Wayne White on the podcast, because his work is so funny. And I was asking him about how he, you know, dealt with the fact that when he first started showing his funny paintings, people didn't take it seriously. They do now, but they didn't. And he was just like, who cares? Well, it was more swear-filled than that. But right. it was basically, who cares? And yeah. I was like, yeah, who cares? Like, why for 20 years? have I let this stop me? And so that is my mandate. That's what my books are about. That's what this podcast is about. I just want people to exactly what you said, like be authentic. You know, I tell people, if you're funny, make funny art. If you're you're super weird, make super weird art, like, because you're the only you and your interests and your childhood and every, all the fibers that have, have come together to make you, no one else is like that absolutely so therefore absolutely. no one else can make that same art so it's it's when you harness that it's so freeing I agree I agree yeah, yeah. I agree
1: fantastic
0: so, and so what do you and right now you have a show that's still up for another few weeks
1: I do I have uh, I can share with you there's an uh a show at the Danforth Museum mm-hmm. and the Midnight it's, Blooms that's right yep Midnight yep. Blooms and it's all about my surprise and investigation of looking at my own garden at the dark of the night and seeing how much activity happens at night, and really challenging my my sense of prejudice that nothing was going on at night, but really in <laughs> actuality, there's so much activity that inspired that project. It's up until the 28th of February. Yeah, and open uh, through social distancing. So if you're in okay. the Boston area. You can see uh, the show at the Danforth Museum. Uh, There's also a show up at the Fuller Craft Museum that's also in the Boston area, and it is closed, but you can take a beautiful virtual tour.
0: Okay, I'll put a link to that.
1: See that exhibition, and it's not a solo show. It's a group show on paper clay, and paper clay artists from around the world. Wow. Wow. Curated by the curator Peter Held, and I have a piece in that show. But you've you can see a wonderful virtual tour of that exhibition.
0: Wow! So, Were you familiar with those other artists before? I am.
1: I was familiar with most of them. It was yeah. wonderful, wonderful to see. And it's been traveling around the country. It's oh, been so at four, four four other locations around the country. Wow! And it's at the Fuller Craft Museum, and is open. We hope, we hope uh, when COVID settles down, we hope the doors will open again. It is scheduled to be open until I think mid May. So okay. if you're traveling this spring in the Boston area, again, you can see uh, a, a international paper clay exhibit. So at the cool. Craft this
0: and are you working Is is it top secret or are you working on any uh, um, exhibit like upcoming stuff?
1: Yes, I am making one last piece to um, go into a show on the Cape, uh, P-Town, Provincetown, Provincetown Art Museum. It opens mid-May. It's a two-person show with um, New York painter Joan Snyder. And the two of us uh, will be paired next to each other. My wall sculptures and her paintings were both incredible colorists, strong color. And so that opens, I think, the third week of May and will be open um, till the end of July. Okay, so you've got one more piece to go that you're working on? I'm working on the last piece, one last piece for that show. I've got six ready, one more to go.
0: Yes. Actually, speaking of that, because you've got things that hang from the ceiling, you've got things on the wall, you've got things on the floor. That's Do right. you, you have a favorite location to put things <laughs>
1: No, I think that I have, you know, I mean, those are series. I did a floor series based on the beauty of the botanical imagery and Persian rugs. Mm. So I did four large, uh, floor pieces. One of them of which ended up at the national museum of women in the arts. So yes. you can see that within the collection there. Um, I, I'm still loving doing the wall series. Uh, the wall pieces are, um, Wonderful that they could end up in domestic spaces. So yeah. people, you know, are purchasing those for their homes as well as I've um had that wonderful opportunity of sighting three of them in hospitals at reception oh. areas. So they're go they're finding homes within living spaces, within human spaces. Right. The installations are definitely museum-based projects and they're always by commission and Mm -hmm. by invitation and, and, um, more of that sort of year and a half, two year marathon research. Right. uh, Based (laughs) process.
0: Yeah. It's kind of nice to have different, like, you know, to have your, your, your finger in a bunch of different stuff so that it's not, Uh you know, so that you can take a break and go on the wall and, you
1: know, yes. Yeah. I actually, I really find that important because the big projects, um, you know, they take, they take months and months to build yeah. and, and, and I don't see them up for two years, baby. Right. And so this, the studio, we keeping the studio, work going, makes me feel really wholesome. And yeah. I love making, and it's wonderful to be able to, to work a bit smaller scale and, you know, knowing that they're going to end up in, you know, domestic sites yeah. Or, you know, sites where humans can enjoy them.
0: Yeah. They're just yeah. stunning. The colors are so um, amazing. Oh, actually, before I let you go, can I ask, um, Oh, so you have more questions. Sorry, <laughs> Rebecca. I just, I'm That's not going to let you go. It's a lie. Okay. You have
1: to be here forever. Okay. Two things. You can call me back sometime. We can do it again. If you <laughs> yeah. ever think that there's a sequel to no, the conversation. Part two. Part two. Okay. I have two more questions and then I'm letting you go.
0: One, <laughs> okay. I thought I read somewhere something yeah. about your flowers, like the, the sort of the blooms that you choose to build and make. Yes. Can you ex- talk about that? Because I, th- I read something and I don't, I can't remember what I read.
1: All, all of the different components and what's in terms of, you know, what's behind me, you're seeing uh, a wall piece that has a willow framework behind it. And it then is covered with all sorts of bloom shapes. Those bloom shapes are made in so many different ways. Some of them are handmade paper. That's some of the brilliant coral color you're seeing behind yeah. me. Some of the purple you're seeing behind me. Some of the muted tones are actually porcelain. So you're, you're seeing a mix of clay and handmade paper, and in some cases, literally the mix of paper clay that's been fired Everything is individual components. And so this piece and all the pieces are made by making individual hundreds and hundreds of, you know, a yellow form or hundreds of hundreds of a tight knit bud form that's green and glazed or a more open form that's petal-like that is not glazed and is porcelain. So I make, you know, that's sort of the factory in me. There are, mo- there are. And will you do? Will you just like make green buds for two yes. days? Yes, for two days in the morning, three hours each morning, and then uh load a kiln and fire them. And then I fill baskets. And so I, I saw have, the
0: picture, I just want yeah. to sit amongst those baskets. Oh, so there I have they Baskets.
1: Are. I have baskets and baskets coordinated <laughs> by color and shape. Okay, there's my tidy, you know, my organized tidiness. I love um, it. And uh, and then once I surround myself with kind of enough shapes and enough color, then I'm really building by assembling. Right. I'm taking each of those components and dipping them into a, a mix of clay and paper. And glue I put an adhesive with the paper and the clay and it's sticky and I dip it in and then I'll stick it onto the frame I'll di- I'll take the next one I dip it in stick it onto the frame and it's through assemblage that way that the that they're blooming out and budding out and you know sort of coming to sort of more uh, full density and is look. that sort of just an organic process or do you have a plan that's an organic process and a plan, huh? In all honesty, there's sometimes where I'm guided, like the Dom Museum, where I was really thinking about the blue gene and the currency. Yeah. That was guided by that research. The piece behind me is called Hybrid Swirl, and that piece was really about kind of the swirl activity, kind of the the gestural swirl. Um, movement that was happy, happening in the piece that was really kind of uh, influenced by rock outcropping, that I saw things grow in patterns. Mm. And so I was really kind of bringing that information in and sort of enjoying the density of the piece, but but sort of the swirling that was happening mm-hmm. within it yeah, It's just so patterns. beautiful. Okay. And then the other question was the color. How
0: do you, does the color come from the stuff that you pulp up or do you add color to your pulp?
1: You're right in the right direction, Danielle. Both. Okay. Blue jean, pulped is blue. Got it. (laughs) Red flannel shirt, pulped is red. you know, green linen shirt pulp is green. So I can keep those colors as well as when I'm paper making, I'll have 50 buckets of colors and I can blend those colors. So I can be a colorist and start blending those colors. I can do the same thing with my ceramic materials. I can put colorants in with the porcelain and make 13 different colored clays. And so then I can construct with the chosen color that I want. And then once things are fired or dried or both, I can then start combining and constructing. Right.
0: Hence the many, many baskets of many different colored
1: things. That's it. (laughs) See, now I have the
0: perfect excuse to put that photo. There's a photo on your Instagram I saw with all your baskets of colors. So now I can put it in. Okay, there. I feel satisfied for awesome. part one that I've got. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for spending so much time and answering all of my questions. It has been so, I'm so glad we kept the video on because you we are just a ray of sunshine. It's so Aww. nice to start my day talking to you. And, um, thank you, such, you know, teachers are always the best guests because they have such great advice because I, you give advice to students every single
1: day. (laughs) We're sharing all the bumps along the road that we know about, but we're also sharing the enthusiasm that we feel for the making process. There's no doubt. I, I I really love all those components to my life. Um, And, you know, uh, thank you for taking the time to mine the process with me. You're mining it with me. You're asking those questions and helping me share. So thank you so much for what you do as well, Danielle. Well,
0: it's my pleasure. And I'm so excited. Now I'm going to go, I've been making clay cigarettes for um, some pieces that I'm making. And I've yeah. been like um, a crazy person. Like I just go downstairs and for hours at a time, I just make clay cigarettes and Great. um I'm not totally sure where it's going, but I think I've got 300 of them now. Awesome. (laughs) So just making them and I'm enjoying it so much. Like exactly what you said that I'm going to go down there now, make more and we'll see where they go. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. It's weird and and funny, right? I got my funny right back in there. anyway well thank you again so so much and um for everyone listening there will be a giant post on my site with videos and pictures and all of the stuff links to workshops and shows um so that everybody can follow along
1: wonderful thank you thank you i'll see you on instagram you too absolutely (laughs) always stay in touch i will you too thank you bye
0: bye See, I told you there was a mini trampoline in this episode. I mean, come on. How creative, hilarious, and inspiring is she? I was not kidding when I said teachers make for great podcast guests. Speaking of which, if you want to be one of her students, at some point you could always take one of her workshops. For those links and to see everything that Rebecca and I talked about, just head over to my site, thejealouscurator.com. There are also a few videos of her, elbow deep in a bucket of pulp. So win-win. Thank you so much to Rebecca for taking the time to come on the podcast. And of course, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.